Galatians chapter 4. Just looking at primarily two verses. We're going to begin in verse 1. We'll be looking primarily at verses 4 and 5 this evening. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word again this Lord's Day, and we humbly ask that you would open it and open our minds to understanding it by the gift and the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that it is only in his light that we see light, and in the unfolding of Scripture that we gain truth and sanctification. So, Father, we do again ask your guidance and ask that the words that we have read and the words that are spoken this evening would be a blessing and for the edification of the body of Christ here in this place. Father, we ask that you would do these things again for your glory, that you might be exalted, the name of Jesus Christ might be lifted up, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. David mentioned that the elders at Fellowship Bible Church rotate the teaching ministry, particularly the pulpit ministry, every four months, and this begins a, a new session on Sunday evenings. And as I was preparing for this Sunday's message and giving thought to the Sunday evening service itself, not so much what I might preach on and what I might teach on, but the purpose of the Sunday evening service, its origination, uh, where it came from. And there are, of course, many different uh, justifications for a Sunday evening service, uh, perhaps more so than the, the Wednesday evening service that became so popular within the church. But it seems to me that the original parallel that perhaps motivated the early Christians to gather on Sunday morning as well as Sunday evening is that of the morning and the evening sacrifice in the tabernacle and in the temple. Although we're not sacrificing in the sense of the Levitical system, we do bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of our God. And the evening, as well as the morning, but the evening seems to be an appropriate time to do that. For me, evening is something I look forward to. I, I enjoy the evening. I, I know not everybody does, but I enjoy the completion of the day, the, the, the thought of the day, not every day, of course, is worth thinking about as, at its end, but the evening is a, is a time of rest and reflection. And I think the evening service on the Lord's Day is just that. It is at the close of the Lord's Day, especially if we go with the evening to evening day, the evening of Saturday to the evening of Sunday, perhaps, it's the beginning of the week, and of course, many of us have the thoughts of this week already on our mind. I remember when I was in engineering, when I was in industry, 
I know my wife will remember this. I used to begin getting my headache Sunday afternoon, you know, just in preparation for the, for the start of the day on Monday. You wouldn't want to just start your headache on Monday. You need to get it ahead of time. Uh, praise God, I don't get that anymore. But still, the week is ahead of us. We're coming to the close of the Lord's Day. And the evening service, I think, seems to be a good time not necessarily for a heavy meal, but perhaps for a lighter repast, a time of meditation, quiet reflection. And the pattern of recent series that my brothers have brought, while not planned, uh, the elders have not gotten together and said, this is what we will do, nor set in stone, the elders have also not gotten together and said, this is what we will continue to do. But the recent pattern has been more of uh, topical studies on important topics, but those that perhaps are tying up loose ends, um, individual topics like the fear of the Lord and what it means and an excellent series on prayer that was just completed. And I think those are fitting for the close of the Lord's Day, a time where the family may gather again like at a meal. And I think... The meals that were held at my in-laws, who were dairy farmers, the heavy meal was at noon, and um, the evening meal was uh, what's much lighter, uh, because the work that still had to be done during the afternoon required the sustenance of a larger meal. And perhaps as we think of the week to come, it is a good time to perhaps pick up a loose thread from other study forums, Sunday school or the Sunday sermon, or perhaps our plumb line series on Thursday evening. And one such thread that has been persistent for quite some time in the various teaching forums of Fellowship Bible Church, Sunday school, Sunday morning sermon, Thursday evening study, one persistent thread has been the continuity and discontinuity debate. The relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. And the people of God through both of those covenants, Israel, church, law, grace. The terminology is such that we're very familiar with, but I'm not sure we've, um, we've settled upon a, a, an answer as to how the two covenants relate and yet how they are different. The answer, of course, centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, as always, that will be the focus of our study. We cannot hold to a view of continuity, for example, that is so firm and so continuous that the advent of Christ becomes meaningless. And one asks the question, well, for what reason did Jesus come? Why was he born? Why did he live? Why did he die? If the plan and purpose of God is so seamlessly continuous from the Old Covenant into the New. On the other hand, we cannot understand the advent of Jesus Christ if we completely disconnect the New Covenant from the Old. If we hold a view that is very popular, especially over the past 150 years, that God has operated in certain distinct and separate dispensations, that it's impossible for us to properly understand why Jesus came and what he did because we are disconnected from the history and the heritage 
through which and from which his advent flowed. And so we read in this passage in verse 4, a very familiar passage, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. And it seems to me that phrase, the fullness of time, is quite germane to the topic of continuity and discontinuity. It shows that God has had a plan and a purpose. And I do believe that the time that is being spoken of here is not chronological time, but redemptive time. That in the purpose and plan of God from the very beginning, really from eternity past, flowed continuously as time does, and yet there was a point in time that could be called the fullness. And that time was the time when God sent his Son. We know that the Scriptures, and especially the Apostle Paul, speaks both in chronological language and in timeless language. He says of believers that they have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And yet we know that it is in time that Christ did come in the flesh, live and teach and minister in the flesh, and of course, and importantly, died in the flesh and rose again. And so we're mixing uh, two concepts that, that are hard to understand. One is quite easy, chronological, and, and oftentimes when you turn to a commentary on this passage, the fullness of time, you will read about how God providentially ordered the structure and the, and the legal framework of the Roman Empire and the Roman roads, and these would enable Paul to travel around the world of that day preaching the gospel. And of course, the Greek language, it is said that that's part of the fullness of time, that through the spread of conquest by Alexander the Great, the Greek language became nearly universal, so that in the Greek language, the new covenant could be disseminated to peoples all around the Roman world. I think all such explanations are baloney because there was a much wider world than just the Roman Empire that was neither reached by Roman roads nor touched by the Greek language. God didn't wait. I mean, if he was going to wait, he would have waited until the advent of the World Wide Web, right? And English is far more universal today than Greek was in that day. And so to try to find some chronological, providential arrangement is just uh, is futile. The fullness of time, we may not know why, but it was the time when God sent forth his son. Most of the world acknowledges that today, even in unbelief. Many of you in, in reading magazine articles, for example, uh, now see the, um, the letters C.E., or B-C-E, beside the year dates of whatever it is being discussed. You may wonder what, what those things are because we're familiar with A.D. and B.C. before Christ and Anno Domini, but you can't use those phrases anymore because those phrases are particular to, a, to one religion, Christianity, and they may offend people of other religions, and so what we'll do is we'll, we'll change the C and we'll call it the, the common era, whatever that means. What's common about the last 2,000 years? And of course, BCE then becomes before the common era. Some people think it means the Christian era, but you can't say that. That's even worse. But the, the, the silly and ironic thing about it is it still hinges on the same event, does it not? It's still 
the alleged birth of Christ, which, by the way, is off by anywhere from four to seven years, um, which is pretty well established, not only by um, cosmological data, but also historical data concerning the reign of Herod the Great, um, who apparently died in 4 BC. So our calendar's wrong to begin with, and God never told us to change the calendar. It's not a big deal. But it is a big deal to recognize that the coming of Christ is the hinge of history. And much of the world doesn't recognize the majesty of the coming king, Jesus Christ, except in their calendars. Even if they say B.C.E. and C.E., the advent of Messiah was of the greatest significance to Israel and to the world. Remember the old man, Simeon, the man who daily was at the temple in Jerusalem looking for the consolation of Israel because the Spirit had told him in prophecy that he would not depart before he saw the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he said when he took Jesus in his arms that this would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel, the coming of Jesus Christ. The continuity and discontinuity debate hinges on the coming of Jesus Christ. There are not seven dispensations. I mean, doesn't anybody realize that that was manufactured? The number seven. And C.I. Schofield, who was a, a renowned scholar and no reason to doubt, a very sincere believer, he came up with seven dispensations. Someone like the Roman Catholic Church has come up with seven sacraments. I mean, there's a little bit of manufacture there. There aren't seven dispensations. If anything, there are just two. Everything moving from the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of woman that would crush the serpent's head, to the promise of Mary that the Holy One would come upon her, or the Holy Ghost would come upon her, and that which was conceived in her would be the Holy One of God. That, that was the, the, the hinge, the pivot of history. Redemptive history, and as we see also, secular history. And so when we talk about the debate between how much is continuous between the covenants and, and what discontinuity there is, I think there is agreement that the point of differential is the coming of Jesus Christ. The solution to the conundrum presented by continuity and discontinuity must account for both the apostles' continued context within the Old Covenant. When you read the New Testament, much of what you're reading is either explicit quotations from the Old Testament or allusions and teachings that cannot be understood apart from a knowledge of the Old Testament. And so there's continuity there without any doubt, and yet they must also be heard in their new outreach to the nations apart from the context of Judaism. That the nations of the Gentiles were being grafted in to this one vine, which is the vine and the root of Abraham, into the Abrahamic covenant, but apart from the Levitical system itself. Discontinuity as well. So meditation on passages like Galatians 4, verse 4, are essential. On the one hand, it says... When the fullness of 
time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Well, see, there's the continuity. Without an understanding of the law and its context in the old covenant, then Jesus' coming will be, at worst, meaningless, and perhaps at best, completely misunderstood. And yet, is there any doubt that what Paul is speaking of here in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4 is a game changer? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. Is that not a game changer? Is that not a, a point at which Paul is saying things have changed? Discontinuity as well as continuity. So what about the coming of Christ changed the landscape? And what about the covenant did not change? Tonight we're going to briefly meditate and reflect on the coming of Christ in various ways that we, in our own mind, focus upon the coming of Christ. Much of the emphasis in the church is placed on the Incarnation. Christmas has been celebrated for many, many centuries, and it is perhaps the major holiday of the Christian church. We look at the Isaiahic prophecy and we look to Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And then, of course, the, the, um, the ultimate evangelical verse or evangelistic verse, and I say that facetiously, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The idea of God coming in the flesh is, of course, incredibly important, miraculous, amazing, wondrous. But it is it the event upon which history hinges. Others in the church, particularly the more charismatic and, of course, Pentecostal wing of the church, focus on the day of Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of God's children to the work of ministry. In a sense, the, uh, the event in which all believers became priests unto their God and King. That is what is reflected by the tongues of fire that settled upon each of the disciples gathered there. It's often viewed as the birth of the church. Certainly, I would say it's the point from which the gospel has spread out into the world. Whatever you may believe as to when the church began, whether the church can be traced back to Abraham, or whether it began with the, the gathering of Israel at Sinai, or whether it began only at the day of Pentecost, clearly Pentecost was an empowerment for the gospel to go out into all the world, the glory, the revelation of God to the Gentiles. But is Pentecost the hinge of history? Is Pentecost the pivot upon which continuity and discontinuity, old covenant, new covenant, hinges or is balanced? In my studies, especially many of the ones recently, uh, the study on the passion narrative in Matthew, as well as the Pauline theology that we talked about uh, a year or two ago on Sunday evenings, it seems to me in the most significant event is not the Incarnation nor Pentecost, but Christ's death. And so the Incarnation, of course, is not unimportant. The Incarnation was toward the death 
Jesus himself said, For this reason I have come into the world, speaking of his death. And Pentecost is certainly not unimportant. unimportant. Pentecost flowed from the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I must go to my Father. I will send to you the Comforter. If I do not go, I cannot send him. And so I'm not diminishing the importance of the Incarnation or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but I'm, I'm looking for, for that event to which the Old Covenant pointed and from which the New Covenant flows. And I believe that it is the death of Christ. Now, of course, in the biblical teaching, the death of Christ encompasses his resurrection. And we will be looking also at the resurrection of Christ. But I think it is significant in terms of the gospel that we preach that Paul said, that I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And I think in Paul's teaching especially, but also in Jesus' own self-witness, his death is of paramount importance. And so the topic of, of this series of meditations on Sunday evenings will be on the death of Christ. Now, that doesn't sound very cheerful, does it? I, I hope it does, actually. Because really... The study is on the nature and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is contained in the death of Jesus Christ. It is a ground of assurance and hope for every believer. It is the heart and soul of the gospel, the good news. And so I hope that our time in study on the death of Christ will be enlightening. I hope that we'll be able to look at the death of death in the death of Christ. And a part of the study that I intend to direct in these Sunday evenings will be guided by a famous treatise written by John Owen, published in, I believe, 1647, called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That in the death of Christ, the victory over sin and the grave and Satan was won. On our behalf, he who knew no sin became sin and suffered the penalty of sin, the wages of sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that these evenings together might be a time of sweet reflection and meditation on your word, gathering together in our minds the things that we have heard on the Lord's day, the teachings, the readings. We pray that they might sink deep into our hearts and into our minds, and that as we go into the world on Monday, we would not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, I pray that these times together, these Sunday evenings, might be a sweet and quiet reflection on the grace and the mercy of our Almighty God, the majesty and the power of our Lord and King Jesus Christ, and the guidance and the peace of your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would bless these times together for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction from the small epistle of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.